Today is Wednesday, September the 27th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? We have been bringing computer industry news, hardware and software reviews, guest interviews, and news of user group meetings for the past 40 years. The Personal Computer Show is a three-time winner of the prestigious National Computer Press Awards. The Personal Computer Show had for many years been a call-in talk show. The pandemic-causing studio lockdown has altered our format. The listener call-in format enabled us to know what technology issues were on the mind of the listeners. Our only advocacies are consumerism and the First Amendment. I welcome you, the listeners, to provide feedback as to what you want to hear. Address your suggestions to hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's www.prn.live. That's L-I-V-E. Streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Chromebooks are now given a decade of support. Windows PC will run as long as Microsoft supports the operating system with the equipment installed on the system. Windows PCs tend to slow down from, as we know it, from layers and layers of maintenance of bug fixes and enhancements. Major Mac OS versions are only maintained for three years. Now Google is promising a decade of support for newer Chromebooks. I like that. The catch is, of course, it starts with a date of manufacture, not when you bought the machine. Anyone can install Chrome OS Flex and get back to work on their rejuvenated hardware in less than an hour, so long as your box has an Intel or AMD x86 or 64-bit processor with 4 gigabytes of RAM and 16 gigabytes of storage, and you could boot it from a USB drive, then you're in business. Although Google doesn't advertise it, you can also use Chrome OS Flex to revitalize old Chromebooks. It works like a charm. Now, since Google and Chromebook vendors have liberated Chromebooks from their artificial auto update expiration, that's AUE date, most newish and all forthcoming Chromebooks get an official 10 years of support. While this extended lifespan was mostly to make schools happy, it's good news for anyone who wants to save money and have a computer that will still be as useful in 2033 as it is now in 2023. Officially, the new 10-year support lifespan will be born in 2024. Google will offer support for specific platforms. A platform isn't a manufacturer's brand Instead, it's a specific model type. For example, low-end ARM-powered Chromebooks would be one model type, while high-end Intel i5 Chromebooks would be another. But starting immediately, Google is extending 10-year support to all 2021 Chromebooks and newer models are getting the support lifetime extension. In addition, if you have an older pre-2021 Chromebook, you can extend your support once it reaches its AUE. So, if your Chromebook will see its support end within the next two years, you'll get more years of support. 
I think this makes Chromebooks the best computer deal going around. Some people make fun of Chromebooks, saying they're only useful when they're connected to the internet. That's not true. For example, you can still write documents in Google Docs without a connection. Besides, modern Chromebooks make dandy Debian Bullseye Linux workstations, if you switch Linux on. Besides, most Windows and Mac OS users don't use local software anymore. Take Microsoft Office 2021, the standalone old-school PC version of Office. It doesn't even show up in the Office software market studies. The top Office program today is Google Workspace with 50.3%, then Microsoft 365 with 45.4%, and somewhere buried in the noise, you'll find Office 2021. You get the point? Except for hardcore Linux and open source users, we're already moved to a cloud-based desktop. And the oldest, best, and now most long-lived of those is Chrome OS on Chromebooks. Chromebooks really are the best of all worlds. They're inexpensive, run forever, double as long as Linux PCs, and now you can use one through secondary school to college graduation and beyond. No, they're not good for everything. High-end graphics and video, people still need their Macs and PC, and gamers still want juiced-up PCs, but for most people, most of the time, Chromebooks would just work fine. Space Drugs Factory Denied Re-Entry to Earth The Air Force and the FAA denied permission for VARDA, that's V-A-R-D-A, space capsule to return and land on Earth. After manufacturing crystals of an HIV drug in space, the first orbital factory is stuck in orbit after being denied re-entry back to Earth due to safety concerns. TechCrunch reported that the U.S. Air Force denied a request from Varda Space Industries to land its in-space manufacturing capsule at a Utah training area, while the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration, that's the FAA, did not grant the company permission to re-enter Earth's atmosphere, leaving its spacecraft hanging as the company scrambling to find a solution. A spokesperson from the FAA told TechCrunch in an email statement that the company's request was not granted at this time due to the overall safety, risk, and impact analysis. Reporters reaching out to Varda Space to ask which regulatory requirement have not been met, but the company responded with a two-word email that obviously read, no comment. The California startup did provide an update on its spacecraft through X, that's formerly known as Twitter, and they said, We're pleased to report that our spacecraft is healthy across all systems. It was originally designed for a full year on orbit, if needed. We look forward to continuing to collaborate with our government partners to bring our capsule back to Earth as soon as possible. Varda Space launched its spacecraft on board a Falcon 9 rocket on June the 12th. The 264-pound capsule is designed to manufacture products in a microgravity environment and transport them back to Earth. On June 30th, its first drug manufacturing experiment succeeded in growing crystals of the drug Ritonavir, which is used for the treatment of HIV in orbit. The microgravity environment provides some benefits that could make for better production in space, overall reducing gravity-induced defects. Protein crystals made in space form larger and more perfect crystals than those created on Earth, according to NASA. Space drugs have finished cooking, baby. Delian 
as Pararofov, Vardis co-founder, wrote on X that statement. Unfortunately, the space drugs are not allowed to come back to Earth. Vardis' capsule was originally scheduled for re-entry on September 5th or 7th, but the company's application was denied on September the 6th. Vardis formally requested that the FAA reconsider its decision on December 8th, and, well, it's a government agency. That request is still pending. It's a very different type of re-entry capsule. If you think about it, both Dragon and Starliner, these are SpaceX vehicles that are $100 million plus minimum to build and billion dollar plus programs. These are meant to carry humans, have active control, fully pressurized environments. Vardis Space said, we are effectively the polar opposite of re-entry vehicle. If those are luxurious limousines, we're building like a 1986 Toyota Corolla that is meant to be less than a million dollars a pop, quickly refurbished and shot right back into space. Vardis in-space manufacturing capsule is a byproduct of a growing space industry which grants easier access to low Earth orbit. The current regulatory debacle is also the result of a young space industry, one in which proper regulations of spacecraft are still taking shape. One has to assume that Vardis Space had received permission to launch a space vehicle to manufacture products in a microgravity environment and transfer them back to Earth. Now that the mission was accomplished, the FAA has thus far denied them permission for re-entry. Something is amiss in the logic. A lesson to be learned for future space flights. Make sure you get permission to return before you take off into space. The FCC accused telcos of profiting from robocalls. Suspicious phone company is on the verge of having all its calls blocked by U.S.-based telcos after being accused of ignoring orders to investigate and block robocalls. The FCC said One Owl Telecom, that's OWL, is a U.S.-based gateway provider that routes phone calls from outside the United States to consumer phone companies such as Verizon. Robocalls on One Owl's network apparently bombarded consumers without their consent with pre-recorded messages about fictitious orders. On August the 1st of this year, the FCC sent One Owl a notification of suspected illegal robocall traffic, ordering it to investigate robocall traffic identified by U.S. Telecom's industry traceback group to block all of the identified traffic within 14 days and continue to block the identified gateway traffic as well as substantially similar traffic on an ongoing basis. The FCC order said One Hour apparently hasn't taken any of the required steps. One Hour never responded, and the FCC Enforcement Bureau is not aware of any measures One Hour has taken to comply with the notice. The FCC said it previously took enforcement actions against two other entities whom One Hour is closely related. Illum Telecommunication Limited and One Eye, that's E Y E L L C, while operating under different corporate names. These entities have shared personnel, IP addresses, customers, and a pension for disregarding FCC rules. The FCC said if One Hour doesn't provide an adequate response within 14 days, all phone companies receiving calls from it will then be required to block and cease accepting all traffic received from One Hour beginning 30 days after release of the final determination order. 
one owl faces a simple choice, comply or lose access to U.S. communications networks, FCC Enforcement and Bureau Chief Loyan Eagle said in a press release. The industry traceback group investigated robocalls sent through one owl between February and May of this year, and the FCC said some calls reported to be from AMC Trading LLC and stated that your product is ready to ship. The cause asked consumers to confirm the order. Other calls stated that a pre-authorized order had been placed on your name. The cause did not state what the order was for or where the order was placed, the FCC said. The FCC said one owl's CEO is Ashe Kandawal and that he is resident of Maryland, who also has a presence in Las Vegas and Mumbai, India. He was listed as a human resources representative at Illum. Illum CEO is a person named Prince Anand, who sometimes uses the alias Frank Murphy. The FCC said Anand created one eye after the SCC issue and enforcement action against Illum in October of 2021. To deflect the FCC's scrutiny, Anand intended to keep his name off One Eye's corporate documents. The FCC's August 2023 letter said, Kashu Harsha, a director of Illum, became One Eye CEO, and Asha Kandawar, the human resources representative for Illum, subsequently formed One Eye and became the CEO. The FCC ordered all voice service providers to block One Eye traffic in May of 2023. Now its successor company, One Owl, faces the same outcome. One Owl and One Eye use the same IP address and email domain to conduct their business and shared customers that the FCC had explicitly identified as the source of illegal traffic. The history of the FCC action against One Owl, One Eye, and Loom suggests that the fight against a group of people behind the robocall senders is not over. The FCC seemed to acknowledge in its press release, saying the Enforcement Bureau will continue to closely monitor One Owl and any related entities. Anand is said to have a presence in Mumbai and Dubai. Habsha is a resident of Ahmedabad in India and has a presence in Delaware. The FCC said another key figure, One Owl VP of Sales and Marketing, Julai Barros is listed as a resident of Mumbai and Dubai. While One Owl has foreign ties, the FCC classified it as a U.S.-based organization because it has U.S.-based facilities that are used to process calls from foreign providers. Efforts to operate under the cloak of ever-changing corporate formations to serve the same dubious clientele demonstrates willful attempts to circumvent the law to originate and carry illegal traffic in a letter issued by the FCC on August the 1st. Well, as an outsider looking at the FCC action, the question is what's to prevent the principals involved in forming a new company and employing the same personnel and adapting the tactics of one owl? Nothing. The action the FCC is taking is commendable, but it has no teeth, no enforcement, and no way of preventing the principals from restarting another company. Comcast starts talk to sell 100% of Hulu to Disney. This would give Disney 100% ownership and is part of a deal that started years ago. This comes as in 2019, Disney bought out Fox and agreed to buy out Comcast 
in 2024. Disney currently owns a majority of Hulu, with Comcast a minority owner. This deal would see Disney become the 100% owner of Hulu going forward. How will this impact Hulu? The plan is for Disney to buy Comcast share of Hulu in early 2024. What is Comcast share of Hulu worth? Well, when Hulu and all its assets were assessed by Disney five years ago, it deemed Hulu to be worth $27.5 billion. Comcast now argues Hulu is way more valuable now compared to then. Now Comcast wants Disney to pay around $30 billion for its share of Hulu. And that's before you ascribe any value to the actual Hulu. And of course, when you go into one of these really robust auctions, there'll be a line of bidders around the block to actually buy all the content and all the bundling of Hulu. How will these two sides come up with a price? In an SEC filing early this month, Disney disclosed that the companies were both hire outside investment banking firms to come up with a sale price. Those two firms' valuations will be used to set the final sale price to Disney to buy Comcast share of Hulu. If the two valuations are not within 10% of each other, the two firms will then select a third firm to come up with its own figure. The ultimate sale price will come from the average of the two estimates that are closest in value to each other. Here is how Disney says the firm will come up with the price. The appraisers shall take into account factors they determine relevant to valuation and certain specific factors, including, among others, Hulu's historical financial and operating results, which shall be based solely on audited financial statements that Hulu is valued as a going concern, carrying on its existing business activities and Hulu's future business prospects and projected financial and operating results, assuming that the assets, contract rights, and intellectual property used in Hulu's business that are provided by Disney will be continued and available to Hulu in a manner and on terms consistent with past practice. What will this mean for Hulu subscribers? For now, very little will change on Hulu as Disney has had full control of Hulu since 2019. At that time, Comcast gave up its board seats to Disney in exchange for this deal to have Disney buy all of Hulu in 2024. Comcast has also moved most of its content over to Peacock, so this likely means for the foreseeable future, very little is expected to change with this sale, at least for its subscribers. The questions come down the road once Disney can do what it wants with Hulu without needing to give Comcast a cut of the profit, of course. For now, though, we will have to wait and see what really happens. Microsoft Defender, Kaspersky, Malwarebytes, Norton, they can and they do slow down Windows PCs. AV Comparatives and AV Test, which is another anti-malware assessment company, has published its latest findings recently. The new report, as usual, evaluates various anti-malware solutions in terms of protection, performance, and usability. In the AV Comparative's latest release report about web threat protection, the firm found that some of the popular vendors' products like Microsoft Defender and Kaspersky, among several others, had regressed in terms of performance. Overall, despite being amongst fairly popular antivirus products, Malwarebytes scored the lowest in the protection category when compared to other popular anti-malware solutions like Avas AVG, 
Microsoft Defender, and Kaspersky, among others, as it scored 5.5 out of 6 points. The reason for the lowest score seems to be its failure to perform as well as the others against zero-day samples. AV Test notes that malware bite scores lower than the industry average of 99.6% detection rate at 98.5% and 99.6% in May and June 2023 tests respectively. In another area where malware bites seem to suffer is in system resource utilization, at least in one of the tested scenarios. In the performance section of the test, which measures the average influence of the product on computer speed and daily usage, the software was clocked in at 17% in the slower launch of standard software applications, subcategory in May 2023. To malware bytes credit though, the June results is much better as it was down to nearly half at just 90%, which is right around the industry average of 10%. Others like Defender, Kaspersky, and Norton, among others, also exhibited some of these symptoms under specific circumstances. Kaspersky, for example, was really slow when launching popular websites, as it was at 20% in both May and June as compared to the industry average of 14%. Microsoft Defender, interestingly, was really bad in installation of frequently used applications, while at the same time it was outstanding in the launch of standard software applications category. Microsoft product was at 17% in May of 2023, and it got worse at 21% in June against an industry average of 14%. Norton exhibited similar behavior with 24% and 20% in May and June, respectively. In case you're wondering about the winners, the best performances were put up by Avas AVG, McAfee, and Bitdefender. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we spend every week just a little bit of time in regards to computers, technology, and the workplace. And this week, I want to talk about policies. IT policies. The Information Technology Department has set up a number of different policies And we're going to actually spread this across two weeks. This week, I want to talk about the policies that impact you directly. The other policies I'm going to talk about next week, they're about policies that exist that you don't know about. They're not directly about you. They're internal policies. These are today, these are the external policies, the ones that an employee would have to deal with. And you're probably familiar with the very first one. And that is passwords and uh, your authentication. You know, that idea that we should all use customized, individualized passwords. We shouldn't share them around with anybody. We should be adhering to the policies per our uh, our company. I'm going to tell you, whatever that policy is, I want you to think about ways you can take it a step further. I want you to think about, okay, the policy is eight characters minimum, numbers, letters, special characters, uh, uppercase and lowercase letters, and you need to pick three of them. And and that's that's a common one, eight, eight characters long, and you need to pick three out of the four. 
I want you to think about picking four out of the four. And I also don't want you to think about eight characters. I don't even want you to think about 10 or 12. I'm thinking 15, 20 characters long. We're talking about going that extra mile. And the reason for that is that password is that last line of defense for getting into your systems at the office. This is how we ensure that the work that is done, good or bad, on your system is yours and not some tomfoolery that's being done by somebody in another department who's come along and found out that uh, you've you know you've stapled your your password onto your day planner or it's it's a sticky note up on the monitor or whatever it is so let's start off with that don't put up your password anywhere where anybody can see it i knew i knew someone who put it on a piece of tape a little sticker that was underneath his keyboard bad idea there's also an acceptable use policy and that's all about how you use the internet, how you use email, and how you utilize the rest of those IT resources. Look, this is an important thing. And it, it's both to protect the company, but also to protect you from, hey, he was goofing off and he was doing non-work all day long. Like, I don't want you to get into that. I don't want you to get into any kind of problems in the workplace. So, as always, keep your work stuff at work, your home stuff at home. And that's a that's a key policy there. And you've got to make sure you understand whatever that acceptable use policy is. Along with that, they probably have various policies in regards to the devices. Bring your own device, like utilizing your personal cell phone for your work email. And in some cases, that may be okay. And in other cases, it may not be. And that kind of depends on which state you're in because different laws apply in different locations. Check with your IT department. Find out what that policy is. You know what? One thing to take advantage of that idea that, oh, your policy doesn't allow you to use your personal phone to monitor your email. So don't take that upon yourself. If they need you offline, it, when you're you know on your drive home or you're at home, they can issue you a cell phone. They can issue you a smartphone to have access to it. This is this is a wise approach to go. We, we've grown accustomed to, I don't want to carry two cell phones. I don't want to do that and blah, blah, blah. Look, it's, it's important. And another policy that's very common as well, a matter of remote work policies. And usually we've, we've been aware of those much more in recent days and, well, the last few years because we've been dealing with the, the aftermath of COVID. So, yes, make sure you're following whatever guidelines they have. There may be specific items where, okay, you're going to use a VPN. You may not be aware that you're using a VPN, but they've got one set up probably. But they may say, we want you to make sure that you're turning off your system during the middle of the night, you, you know, in case somebody breaks into your house or, or whatever. And they may have a few different things in regards to how they want you to handle various issues. 
do follow these. These are important ones. Uh, one last one, your email and communication policy. And this kind of leads into uh, or leads back to that acceptable use policy. But with an email and communication policy that's set up properly, it's going to be talking about what are the things that you can use your email for? What are the things that are going to be key for confidentiality in emails? What are the things like don't forward the email off to everybody in the company, only forward it to minimal amounts of people? And sometimes these are just a matter of best practices and guidelines, but other times they're set in stone. I want you to think about all of these different policies, and I want you to think about ways where you can make sure you're going the extra mile at your office. These policies are important. They're set up, again, by by IT, by the business owners, by various layers of management to ensure, yes, that information is protected, and yes, that your job is protected, and yes, that IT's job is protected. So think about that. Think about that very carefully. As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. SD cards come in different types, such as SDHC, which is Secure Digital High Capacity, and SDXC, which is Secure Digital Extended Capacity. The type of SD card can affect its data retention capabilities. So how long does data last on an SD card? SD cards are faithful companions in cameras, mobile phones, and many other devices. But how long does the data really remain on SD cards? The technology behind SD cards is based on flash memory, which retains information securely even without a power supply. Nevertheless, this technology has its limits. The electrical charges stored in the memory cells, which represent our data, can become unstable over time. This means that they can lose their charge, which in turn leads to data loss in the worst case. But how long does it take for this to happen? According to the standards for flash memory, to which manufacturers of SD cards also refer, a memory cell should be able to preserve data for at least 10 years at a temperature of 55 degrees Celsius. That sounds reassuring at first, but in practice, other factors play a role. These factors include the quality of the card, the intensity of use, and the environmental conditions. All of these influences the actual lifespan of the SD cards. For example, frequent writing and deleting of data, high temperatures, and even humidity can accelerate the aging process of the memory cells. Cheaper cards that are made of less robust components are often particularly affected. The lifespan of SD memory cards depend on several factors such as temperature, use, and ambient humidity. So one thing is clear. It is difficult to give a blanket answer to the question, of how long an SD card will last. It depends on many factors, from the quality of the card to the type of use and environmental conditions. Some users report cards that still work perfectly after several years of storage in a drawer. Others experience that an intensively used SD card give up the ghost after a short time. So the conclusion remains. SD memory cards are wonderful tools for mobile data storage and transport, 
However, they are not the first choice for long-term data backup. To avoid data loss, you should always back up important information on several media. Because although an SD card can theoretically last up to 10 years, the reality may be quite different due to various factors. SD memory cards are a popular data carrier, especially in cameras and smartphones. However, these storage media are not intended to last forever, but they can be used to store data on the go for short periods of time. You do not want to wait for the SD card to be ineffective before replacing it. By that time, you may not have any other source for the stored information to do recovery. SD media is very inexpensive. We are reminded to change the batteries in all critical devices, such as smoke alarms, security alarms, and incandescent light bulbs, when you either change the clock with the first day of spring or with the first day of fall. Similarly, purchase a supply of SD media and copy the material in use onto the newly purchased SD media. By the way, I would also recommend you do this for all the flash memory sticks in use. Is commute part of the workday? There's a fundamental difference in perspective on that issue. When does your workday start? Is it the moment you leave your home for the commute to work? Or when you read work-related messages while waiting for coffee in your office building lobby? Or is it when you get to your desk open your laptop, and log into your inbox. If you ask workers, most are likely to say commuting counts as work. You can imagine what their employers are thinking. The commute is just one way bosses and workers often disagree on what counts as a productive workday. The back and forth is what has landed most companies in a seemingly endless war with the employees over the return to office. When it comes to remote work, The problem actually boils down to fundamental differences in perspective. That's according to the latest National Bureau of Economic Research working paper. It pinpoints the two big disconnects between managers and workers that are stalling return-to-work efforts. First, workers think nixing the commute directly leads to greater productivity because it puts more hours back in their day. Second, workers aren't grasping the managerial challenges of leading a remote workforce. The real dilemma is that the two sides make valid points. The commute is, by definition, time spent not working. Although many workers who stay home end up spending the extra hour of their jobs anyway. And even the stoutest pro-flexibility experts acknowledge that in-person work is critical for early career workers and that middle managers are mired in the unenviable position of enforcing the in-office mandates of the higher-ups and managing the concerns of the entry-level workers digging their heels in. The mismatch understanding of what matters most and what actually impacts productivity explains why we're still, after all this time, playing this tug-of-war. Accounting for commute time is a big deal when assessing the effectiveness of remote work. Respondents say they're more productive at home. Nearly all 86% say the time they save by not commuting is a major perk and one of their favorite parts of working from home. Consider someone who works eight paid hours a day, lives 30 minutes from the office, and accomplishes the same amount whether working from home or the office. Total time devoted to work is nine hours per day when commuting and eight hours per day when working from home. 
so the worker perceives correctly that he or she accomplishes the same amount in 11% less time when working from home, a big productivity boost. Workers thus have more hours back for other activities, whether it be leisure or childcare. While they're not always spending these hours on their job, many do end up spending it getting more work done. That's probably more productive than employers assume. The work-from-home research data finds that nearly half, 43% of workers, with remote-capable jobs say they're more productive at home. Just 14% said they're less productive. The remaining 43% said they were about the same in either place. Still, though, work-from-home research also finds that fully remote work is associated with 10 to 20% lower productivity than fully in-person work. In many of the studies, it is cited workers often get more done when remote simply because they save time from the daily commute and from other office distractions. This can make them look more productive on a per-day basis, even if it means they're actually less productive on a per-hour basis. The ongoing discrepancy in perspective has been ongoing for quite some time. Back in January, research from the Harvard Business Review found that employees tend to include their time commuting to work in the assessment. When that commute is eliminated, they view it as productivity increase. Employers naturally instead see it as less bang for their buck. While workers may be quick to say bosses want them in office to keep a closer eye on them, considering all the productivity paranoia going on, who can blame them? It's a little more nuanced than that. What workers think may be more productive for them is not always more productive for managers. This can leave employees blind to their manager's plight. Senior managers in particular are worried about how a remote workforce would wallop company culture. Namely, they fear it would reduce opportunities for training and upskilling among greener workers, which would have a domino effect on the whole company's productivity. It contributes to that 10% to 20% productivity decline, and this is what the researchers found. Supervising, training, mentoring, and building firm culture is much harder with fully remote workers than with workers who come in at least a few times a week. Challenges in communicating remotely and lack of motivation are the main issues preventing fully remote workers from being more productive. It's not easy being the boss, especially when tasked with both enforcement and managing the norms of the workplace that continues to evolve at a rapid clip. Two-thirds of leaders say they have more responsibilities now than they did before COVID, and the rates of reported burnout are through the roof. Middle managers have become companies' invaluable shock absorbers. They're less likely than workers above or below them to feel appreciated, and they're more likely to say that since 2020, they've struggled more with mentoring employees and communicating effectively. A major way to fix the issue, sorry to say, is more in-person collaboration. When managers feel connected to their teams, the odds that an organization culture will thrive increases. But when it comes to in-person work, bosses underestimate how amenable employees might be to the upsides. Workers, especially younger ones, are well aware of how beneficial in-person gatherings can be. The share of people who want to be fully remote is highest for older workers and increases with age. 
Managers and the public are perhaps a bit too cynical about workers' perceptions of in-person work. Many workers seem well-attuned to the trade-offs of interacting remotely. The solution isn't nearly as complex as it may seem. As the experts have maintained for years, a flexible hybrid schedule is almost always the proper approach. Have you ever wondered about the median age of employees at all the top tech companies? Well, I asked the question, is there age discrimination at top tech companies? Back in 2007, Mark Zuckerberg said that young people are just smarter. In recent years, older employees have faced layoffs or not been hired by tech companies in the first place. Older startup founders have been refused venture capital funding because they're not 25 years old. But just how young is the valley? Is the stereotype that youth rules the tech world actually accurate? Market research firm Statista took a look at the median age of employees at the top tech companies in the United States, ranging from Apple to Google to Facebook. While companies like AOL skew a bit younger, and many employees at HP are likely pushing close to 40 or older, most employees in the tech world are in their late 20s. A recent study released by the Society for HR Management reveals research detailing the prevalence of age discrimination in the workplace and its impact on the U.S. workforce. The research noted that 30% of U.S. workers say they have felt unfairly treated due to their age at some point in their career. Of these workers, 72% say it even made them feel like quitting their job. The study results revealed the following. The survey found that 26% of U.S. workers aged 50 and older report they've been a target of age-related remarks in the workplace, and among U.S. workers aged 50 and older, 1 in 10 say they at some point felt less valuable at work compared to younger workers. To combat age discrimination when applying for jobs, Experts say it makes sense to review your resume so it doesn't typecast you as an applicant of a certain age or stereotype skill set. Human resource experts and job recruiters shared insights into items of your resume that could be shown your age, which could, in turn, lead to age discrimination. And here's what to know in preparing your resume. The survey found that 26% of U.S. workers aged 50 and older report they've been the target of age-related remarks in the workplace. So on your resume, try not to include too much experience. For most jobs, you should only include your past 15 years of experience. If you include anything beyond that, you put yourself at higher risk of age discrimination. The hiring manager doesn't need to hear about your part-time jobs from when you were in high school. If you apply for jobs today, you should have enough skills and accomplishments to highlight during the past 15 years to impress the hiring manager. Another factor is you're using the wrong email address. If you're using a Hotmail or AOL email address, you're telling the hiring manager you haven't bothered to keep up with trends for two decades. Switch to a Gmail account or an email account connected to your own branded website. The other is the way you format your resume. If you're still using two spaces after a period, it's time to say goodbye to that old typewriter-based convention. While it may seem like a small thing to have an extra space, it's like circling your age with a big red marker. It serves as a glaring indication that you haven't kept up with writing and formatting expectations. 
And in terms of revealing graduation dates, especially from early education, can quickly allow for age calculations. The fix is to prioritize higher educational qualifications and achievements, leave out the graduation dates, focusing instead on the institution and course of study. And you may be overlooking modern tech skills. Emphasize your depthness with current software, tools, and programs. This showcases your readiness to tackle modern challenges head-on. And a final word of advice. Tout your experience, but leave out the personal info. Age is but a number, but what truly counts as an applicant is the ability to deliver, adapt, and grow. By refining your resume with these strategies, you ensure that prospective employers witness your brilliance unclouded by age-related biases. Remember, your resume's ultimate goal is to open doors to discussions so that your authenticity and competence can truly show. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty's rolling his eyes. He's like, don't diminish the amount of listeners you've got. Why just just those of us on the show amount to more than that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just just yeah. I, I like to you know just play it down and just like comfy right, cozy. It's just us there's talking. There's dopey here. and grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> you just you just you called out Steve and and Keith all at one. <laughs> I won't say which one is which, but it's uh, all right, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> That is Marty Winston. He is, of course, uh, he is one of uh, one of our research guys. He, he comes up with a lot of different things and uh, does a lot of reviews here on the show. What, what do you have for us this week? What's rolling? <laughs> well, oh, good, good question. Uh, a little while back, I reviewed a Kensington keyboard that outperformed my expectations, became yes. my everyday keyboard. Yes, here. yes, yeah. Well, when I was looking at one of the online photos of it, I saw a trackball next to it that looked a lot like the one I'd been using. So I had Kensington send me their ProFit Ergo vertical wired trackball. Now, wired meaning Pro it plugs into USB, Ergo. but if you'd rather, there's a wireless twin, use a dongle or Bluetooth. Okay. I, I chose wired uh, because I don't have to worry about charging a battery that way. Uh, it's a trackball, not a mouse. So a wire stays in one place and you're not whip and lashing all over the the desk yeah it. yeah 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 um and vertical is a little more of an adjustment the ball's about a half an inch higher than on that other trackball which cants my wrist a little more vertically took some getting used to but ultimately it's more comfortable now most trackballs have a hole underneath so you can use a pencil or something to poke the ball out yeah and the dust yeah out of the yeah, yeah this one has a button down there that you press to pop the ball it also has three buttons not on the other trackball one chooses a trackball motion resolution in dots per inch. Mm -hmm. uh, two are programmable. And let me do something I don't remember ever doing with a trackball, sending a keyboard macro without using the keyboard. Mm, okay. So yeah, yeah. now the new companion to my Kensington keyboard is a Kensington ProFit vertical wire trackball. It's about 70 bucks. And no, they didn't pay me to say that. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've, I, I've seen... Uh, a lot of interesting things coming out of Kensington recently, and I, I really like them. I, I, yeah, I, they, yeah, they're an old, old time, long time player and, yes, and yes. smart about stuff. Uh, can we go back to the garage? Yeah, uh, oh, okay. Downstairs? 
Uh, well, yeah, upstairs for me, downstairs okay, for you. Okay, the garage. All right, we're headed off to the garage. Pardon blaster the echo products. as we wander in here. Yes, go on. Sorry. <laughs> blaster Products makes blaster premium silicone garage door lubricant. I can do a lot with it to improve and quiet down the metal parts of a garage door as it goes through its ups and downs. I prepped for this report by also getting some advice from professionals, often yeah. conflicting, but I'll try to resolve what I believe to be the best advice before we're through. Okay. This this is a purpose-designed silicone lubricant at high pressure, high enough so you can use this instead of grease. But it's mm -hmm. something you almost certainly would not want to apply to your eyes or your skin and so on. So wear eye protection and gloves and grab a rag for part of the chore. Mm, yeah. If it gets on your hands or arms, you can wash it off with Dawn. Okay. And don't all even right. take the cap off the can until you read all the instructions and precautions. That's sure. the hard part. Now it gets easy. For a door with hinges between horizontal panels, you want to spray between each hinge pin and the hinge curl from both sides and use it generously. For the rollers, if they have exposed bearings, it may or may not be okay to spray in there. I had conflicting advice on that. It's designed not to turn dust into gummy gunk, but doing nothing with those bearings might be safer. It's the roller axles that you want to lubricate, again, from both sides without okay. going as far as the roller wheels themselves. Mm -hmm. Most garage doors have a compression spring with exposed coils over the top center of the garage door. Yeah, yeah. That with a broad spray and be generous. Those are on a rod that goes to pulleys on both sides with cables to the door. Spray the exposed pulley bearings and the bearings on mechanisms supporting that rod. Also spray the pulley groove, and it's okay to spray the steel cables too. Your opener has a trolley track with a chain or belt or rod inside. Don't use this lube on the chain or the rod and never let it get on a belt. Okay. Lift the belt out of the way as you spray only the top outside lips of the trolley run on both sides, left and right. You can use that rag to wipe off any gunk along that rail and do the same along the inside of the roller travel tracks along both sides, but don't lube those. Also, you do want to spray the connection pivot points on the angled L-shaped arm, you know, the one you pull the rope to disconnect the door from the yes, truck. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, spray that uh, and then manually pull that rope and run the door up and down by hand five or six times to help distribute all the lube and to let you listen for any remaining noise. When you're happy with the result, reconnect it, try once or twice with the opener. No, you're not losing your hearing. It does get that much quieter. Okay. It also helps those parts last longer, helps your opener use less water to do its job. It can even keep everything working better longer, pushing their need for maintenance way down the calendar. So a 9.3-ounce can of Blaster Premium Silicone Garage Door Lubricant is about 6 and a half bucks at Home Depot and elsewhere. Okay, so is when I hear, uh, okay, nine ounces. So you can do a lot of, I, I imagine, a lot of garage doors with this. You know, I did my garage door, and the can barely felt like I'd used any. Okay, yeah. yeah. So good stuff. All right. But well, you can't go door to door. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer Club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Tech Ed Connect meets Thursday, October the 5th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. 
online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey has their meeting on Friday, October the 6th. Meeting time is 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Their website is acgnj.org. The King's Bite Computer Club meets Tuesday, October the 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. And for more information, the phone number is 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, October the 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, October the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. The Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, October the 26th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is bcug.com. Happy computing! Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN, live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.